Why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 5? I want to read the next couple of verses and um, we're going to pick up where we left off. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, and it's page 1427. Verse 31, Jesus says this. He says, It was also said, and here he quotes from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I'm sure you've realized by now that the habit, the pattern that we we follow here is that we we tend to to walk through passages of Scripture. And um, one of the reasons we do that, and one of the reasons we're doing it with this passage in particular, is that you can... If as a preacher you're, you're just every week thinking about messages to bring, you can be quite selective and you've got a massive book in front of you and it, you can confront whatever issues you choose. Um, but when you say, okay, we're going to walk through a passage of Scripture like the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot escape um, dealing with awkward subjects like last week, um, looking at the subject of love, lust, you can escape it maybe by not coming on Wednesday to Life Group, but you can't escape um, at some point being confronted by these things. And in particular, you can't avoid confronting the real Jesus, because here he is revealed in his word. Uh, If we take a highly selective approach to the Bible, then we can pick and choose the bits that we want to look at. But when we're walking through and we're confronted by what Jesus counted as his priorities, as his sermon, then we start to hit things which... um, we might not otherwise choose to dwell on. And that's kind of where we're at today, looking at a subject like this one, a divorce. Because while I think it's probably one of the most important things that we can be considering and looking at and having a Christian mind about, it's also a, a distasteful subject and a painful subject. I'm not um, unaware that there are people here who have experienced the pain and the fallout personally of divorce. And... All the more important, as we were praying before the service, all the more important that, do you remember how, you may not have read it this far, but how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount. He ends it by talking about two guys building houses, one on the rock, one on the sand. And he says that you're wise if you build your house on the rock. So when we're wanting to to feed on what Jesus has to say, it's like we're building the house of our life to withstand the decades that are to come. And my hope and my prayer today is that when we're thinking about something as important as this, that somehow you're laying a foundation that will make you more ready for life, potentially for marriage if that's God's will for you, and certainly to be a blessing and a help to those around you who are in, in marriage, and to understand also, as we'll see, something about the love of God as we're going to explore today. Because at first glance, Jesus' teaching here seems, to some it would seem ridiculous. And at very least, highly restrictive. He basically says, you mustn't divorce. And the only circumstances he really allows are when your spouse has committed adultery already. They've already broken the marriage. And I think, it, I, don't, I understand why we'd sort of listen to that and think, hey, 
that seems so unreasonable. I can think of a hundred circumstances in which a couple might want to divorce that seem reasonable, and Jesus seems to be unaware of these things. And we might think, okay, that's, that reflects a kind of modern bias, that we are somehow um, a little bit more you know, ethically, culturally developed than they were at the time of Jesus. But do you know that when Jesus taught this later in Matthew 19, we're going to go there soon, the disciples, his own disciples, said to him, if, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. So Jesus' own disciples heard him teach on the matter of divorce, and they said, it's better we don't marry, because we're stuck once we're married. That's effectively the way they're thinking. Like, once you're in, there is no way out. If Jesus' disciples reacted that way, then I think there maybe is one or two excuses for us to, that's to be our first reaction to what Jesus is saying here. But all we need to do then is, is think, well, do we have a, a better, more sound way of thinking in the society we live in? Because a moment's reflection, and you begin to realize, actually divorce has been one of the most destructive and painful realities of the modern world, hasn't it? That the fallout of divorce is huge. And I, wanna, I want to talk sensitively because I, I understand and know that, that we can be, some of us are, uh, are victims of what's happened. And, and so please don't hear me wrongly. But, but we can see, can't we, the evil that's happened, the stupidity and the, the hurt that's happened as a fallout of divorce in our culture. And so the fruit of that, on the one hand, is that many of the people I know are afraid of marriage, who are, particularly who are not Christian. Um, not so much afraid of living with somebody, but afraid of entering into that, that arrangement that's called marriage. Or they may be just apathetic to it, don't really understand the point or the purpose. Why would I marry? We love each other. Isn't that enough? That's the reasoning, isn't it? Other people are, are, are deeply fearful of entering into marriage. Some have experienced the pain of, of seeing their own parents divorce. Some um, have particularly suffered with fatherlessness. And we see it's one of the epidemics of our age, is fatherlessness. It has a huge fallout in terms of people's um, well-being and we see a lot of the sort of gang stuff going on in London at the one extreme, really, is, is to do, do with fatherlessness and divorce and all these kinds of things. We see so much insanity around us and so much of a running away and a fear of the institution of marriage. And yet, we also have this weirdly contradictory reality that we're obsessed with weddings. That while people hate marriage, they love weddings. And we're putting more money into weddings now than ever before. Tens of thousands of pounds. Is, is, the average, I think, is over £20,000 that people spend on their wedding these days. And, and you begin to wonder why. Why was it that when we have a royal wedding, people line the streets and uh, are fascinated by the pageantry and the, and the, and the display of, of beauty and of romance? And I think the answer is, the, the, the reason we're living with this contradiction is because we are basically quite confused about what marriage is. That if, if, if pressed, most people couldn't really answer why marriage is there or what it's there for or what it is in some kind of deeper sense other than just two people choosing to be together. 
When Jesus was preaching, you've got to understand a little bit of the background. There were two dominant schools that had slightly different messages. So here he quotes, doesn't he? He says, quotes from Deuteronomy 24, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. In Deuteronomy 24.1, it says that you can divorce her for something indecent. And there were two schools of thought. There was a rabbi called Shammai who said, something indecent must equate to kind of adultery, like much as Jesus teaches here and elsewhere. And another rabbi called Hillel who said, we need to separate these words and say you can divorce her for something or for indecency. Now obviously... When you divorce someone, you divorce them for something, don't you? And the reality was at the time Jesus was preaching, divorce was easy. You think it's easy today? It was easy then as well. It wasn't like there was some super holy society where, um, and traditional conservative society, people were divorcing their wives. And they could do it for, for things as trivial. And this is in, you can read this, you, as trivial as her burning the food. You know, that's something. She farts, and you think, wow, that's something. You can divorce. That's the reality of marriage, guys, just in case you've never actually considered this. And the other way, of course. <laughs> I need to take um, equal blame. So, but the, one of these rabbis, Hillel, was saying you can, something or indecency, and people were saying, well, you know, divorce is therefore legitimate on almost any grounds. And into this context, Jesus then comes in with his, this message, this this, this trumpet sound that just says, really echoing the words of God in Malachi, so it's basically saying that he hates divorce. And the question that we need to wrestle with, that ought to give us some, some sense of substance of what he's saying here, is why? And I don't think you're going to see much of the why from just two verses in Matthew 5. So can you turn with me to Matthew 19, because we're going to have a look at another place where he teaches a little bit more, um, with a little bit more, depth about his reasoning behind why he hates divorce. Here, the background is that that Pharisees come up to test him, and they ask him this question. It says, verse 3, Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Understand this. Jesus was in a region called Judea, which was ruled by Herod. Herod was a divorcee. They're testing Jesus' integrity. They're testing his courage. It's a little bit like if I was to be on, or if any of us were on national TV in Russia right now, and you were asked the question, what do you make of, uh, of the Ukraine situation? You know if you don't answer according to what Putin wants, you, your life is in danger. And this is what was happening here. The Pharisees are testing him. They're seeing whether he can stand by his teaching even when his life is in danger. And so Jesus is not answering their questions to win friends and influence people. You always must be suspicious of anyone who claims to be a religious teacher or to offer religious guidance or spiritual teaching when everything they say just sounds so agreeable. Jesus cuts across our beliefs. That's why we must understand his heart and his teaching. And that's what he's doing here. Now, from this passage, I think we can discern three big reasons why he hates divorce, why he is so against it. And I want to begin with the first, which is this. 
that Jesus argues from what you could call first principles. What do I mean by that? I mean that the things that you believe about what is right and wrong aren't just plucked out of midair, I hope. They're built on some deeper convictions, maybe ones you've not even articulated yet. And a lot of what we see happening today is that we see a lot of debate happening up at this level, high level of what we do and don't like, what we think is right and wrong. And not much understanding of the the foundations of what makes things right or wrong. So one of the, the really weird examples that we've seen in the last couple of weeks are two stories that have hit the news. Both have come from America, but they, they're affecting us because they're on social media and all the rest of it. And one of them is this, this guy, Bruce Jenner, who uh, was a, an, an athlete in the 1980s who apparently is on the show with the Kardashians, so he's quite well known, and um, he's, he's a public face. And he's gone through some kind of surgery to have breasts implanted and to now call himself Caitlin. And upon his sort of appearance on the cover of um, the magazine, sorry? Vanity Magazine, right aptly named magazine. Upon his appearance upon the cover of this magazine, everyone was falling over themselves to praise the courage of this man. You know, we've forgotten soldiers dying in the Middle East and people suffering for their faith all around the world and we're saying this is courage. And people are falling over themselves to show how politically correct and liberal-minded they are over these issues to the point where if you were to voice any disagreement um, upon whether scientific or moral grounds, apart from what is now you know, the, the given sort of accepted norm then you're considered a bigot. You're considered to be somebody whose views are so outlandish and outdated that there's something wrong with you. It got to a point, there's, if, you were to, if you were to tweet right now and mention Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner and use the pronoun he, immediately a Twitter bot will reply to you and politely remind you that it's a she, not a he. And what is this? What's going on? Well, we've made a choice about what's morally right or wrong in this situation. And I'm not sure that we can particularly articulate the reasons behind that. It seems to me that the logic is something like this, that biology doesn't say who or what you are. Your preferences do. Your, your sense of your, your, inner, your inner mind, you, you choose what you are. That's the logic of it, isn't it? And then we've been hit by another story where a, Rachel, a lady called Rachel Dolezal, you guys come across this? She was the, the leader of a local branch of the NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, an organization that's been around over a century. And uh, it came to light from her parents, who kindly supplied old photographs and testimony, that this lady who claims to be black is not at all black. She somehow has made her skin darker, made her hair um, look like Afro hair, but she is a white girl. She grew up with black adopted siblings, but she is white. And now people are falling over themselves to criticize her and to say that this is wrong, that you can't claim the cause of black people without also entering into the suffering of black people. And, of course, I think they're right. She's deceiving everybody, isn't she? But what's different about these two situations? Two people who are making claims about themselves which are divorced from their biology, separated from their biology. My body 
is not who I am. I am who I think I am, who I feel I am inside. One of them we accept, the other we reject. Why is there such an incoherence about the morality and ethics of the world we live in? And I'm trying to get you back to this point, that we don't know what the foundations are anymore. When we come back to this issue then of marriage and divorce, in fact, of all the issues surrounding sex, adultery, all the kind of stuff that has to do with our sexuality, we're coming back to issues that have to be built on one or other foundation. You know, you've got various options out there. Are we the product of evolutionary um, chance? In which case, I think morality is up for grabs and marriage is just something we've pretty much invented. What Jesus does here then is he brings us back to his first principles. He says you can't deal with the subject of divorce without understanding what marriage is in the sight of God. And he tells us a few things. Let's read on, see what he says. Verse 4. He says, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So he tells us the first thing is that he says that God invented marriage. He said, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. He's referencing the Genesis story. In fact, you might just want to put your finger in there in Genesis 1. If you look on page 2, these are the verses he's quoting from. Genesis 1, 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then over the page on page 4, but chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He's saying, first of all, that God invented marriage. And that might not sound to you like a particularly dynamic or powerful thing to say, but consider this. If you think marriage is a social construct, something that we have invented then it follows that we can uninvent or redefine it, doesn't it? But if you think that marriage is something that God invented because he made us, then it's not something that we get to choose to define. That's the first thing he wants to say about this. And in fact, we can go further and say, if God made marriage, then he, put, he gave it profound meaning and purpose, and we need to know the mind and heart of God on this issue. Let's read on and understand a little bit more. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Here's the second thing. Not only did God invent marriage, but he invented it as something to reflect his image more fully. What do I mean? Well, when he found Adam in the garden, he found a man. Well, he made him. It says that Adam was alone. And God said that this is not good that the man is alone. It was the first thing in his creation account that he said wasn't good. And of course, God knew that because from eternity past, God in himself had existed as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in community. The oneness and a community and love. So to create a man by himself, in isolation, and then to call him the image of God, means that there was something incomplete about Adam's being that he had to be both male and female, which is why in Genesis 1.27 it says that he created him in the image of God 
And then it clarifies and defines it a little bit more narrow, narrowly. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So somehow the plurality of being both man and woman better reflects the image of God than just you in isolation. And I think that this comes into the subject of marriage because I think that marriage is created by God as some way, a way on earth to reflect the nature of God. This becomes a little bit clearer when we read on. He says in verse 5, and it says, God said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. God invented marriage to reflect his image more fully. How? In covenant love and oneness. In the Genesis account when it says that the two shall become one flesh, it uses a word that literally just means meat. It's used of your body. It's not a spiritual sort of esoteric word. It's used sometimes of cattle. Just flesh, you know, like hanging in a butcher's shop, meat, mince meat, meatballs, steak, flesh. And I think there's something deliberate about that. That God isn't saying that this is just a, an invented reality, that when you get married, there's something sort of spooky that happens and you're joined. But he's saying there's something about the very earthiness of you that gets joined to another person when you're married to them that in the eyes of God, you are now one. And that has to, again, reflect the reality of who God is. But how? Because it is covenant love that we're talking about here. The covenant love of marriage involves two things. It involves, on the one hand, the vows that you say the commitment you make to one another. When we look at the covenants in the Bible, they always involve words. Words have a power to bind you at a spiritual level and do some, change something about your very being by joining you to another person. Those whom God has joined together, let no man put asunder. It, say it, it comes from Jesus' words here, but it, we say it at the wedding ceremonies. By the way, I think this is why... You know, prenuptial agreements are a joke. They're a slap in the face to, to marriage. Because how can you say a vow to somebody that I will, I'm with you for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, with your fingers crossed behind your back, as it were, with all your kind of safety nets and precautions, just in case things don't work out? No, no, no. The words mean something. Which is why prenuptial agreements are nonsense. This covenant love is then made up of words, but it's made up of another ingredient. Do you know what it is? It's sex. The Bible shows us elsewhere that it is the act of sex which joins people in this spiritual union, makes them one flesh. And so somehow the combination of vows and of sleeping together put people into this union, which is why there is no such thing as casual sex, as friends with benefits, or whatever you want to say. Sex cannot be a meaningless act. 
It can't be a meaningless act. And that's not to say if any of you have slept with people and regretted it that God can't undo the power and force of what you've done. But it is to say you can't imagine that this has no consequences. It joins you to someone. Marriage is then a much deeper binding than any other relationship on earth. It's more deep than a business relationship where you enter into a contract with someone. And this is why Jesus is saying here that it is unbreakable, it is permanent. He goes on in verse 6, he says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh, one meat, one body. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I hope you've understood a little bit then of what he does. He's laying the foundation. He says, these are my first principles. This is what I think marriage is. And the consequence of that is that it's not breakable. He tells us, he shows us two more things in this passage. The second is this. He reveals the heart behind the problem. Let's read on. Verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying, listen, within the law, there was a provision. It was possible to divorce. It was, in one sense, legally okay. But any of us know that there are things that are legally okay, but morally wrong. Do you remember when you were, actually probably some of you were too young for this, but when I was about 16, so the internet began to sort of become widespread when I was about 15, MSN Messenger was all the rage, and then within a year or two, um, it was file transfer, and in particular, the software Napster was available online. So you download a program, and then you can get whatever song in the world you want. It would take you about an hour to download a single track, and you have a little progress bar. It would tell you how strong the connection was with the person giving it to you, and then they'd sometimes log out, and you start again. It was a completely different world to one. It's not like Spotify or something these days. But basically, you were stealing music from each other, but there was no law because no one had anticipated this would happen. The law didn't cover digital transfer. Copyright law didn't, anyway. And so we were all doing it, But we knew it was morally wrong, even if it was legally okay. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking into here. There are things that are legally passable, but morally wrong before a holy God. And Jesus wants to put divorce in that category. He says, yes, Moses gave you, because Moses had to give laws that would work in a nation state that was also a theocracy, there was a provision for divorce. But he said, that doesn't mean that that things were okay if people divorced, because why do people divorce? They always divorce because of sin and selfishness. Divorces don't happen when people just drift apart in some amiable way. They, they happen when at the root someone has committed a grievous sin against another, or when their heart has become so enwrapped in, in fulfilling their own desires, they forget that if you're my body... My responsibility is to please you before I please myself, which means forgiving you, which means loving you, which means putting you first. Divorce never happens when people understand what marriage is in the first place. It happens when they give way to sin and selfishness, which is why Jesus puts it here. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses said. 
He uses this word sclerocardia. Anyone who's a doctor will recognize the two words there. That the cardia speaks of the heart and sclero, sclerosis, it talks about the hardening. He says that this hardening of your heart is the reason why Moses and God had to give this provision at the time. So then to justify and say, well, divorce is all right, it's really just a way of trying to justify your sin, which we cannot do. So Jesus then has revealed the, the heart behind the problem, that the problem is that our hearts are hard. Why would you want the option divorce? What does that say about us? And then lastly, he does this. Speaking, thinking more generally about where Jesus is coming from with all this. I think he reflects the heart of God on this issue. His teaching may have seemed hard and rigid and difficult for his hearers. Which is why when you read on that verse I read earlier, verse 10, the disciples said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Let me ask you a question, though. Would you trust a God who didn't hate divorce? Think about it like this. The Bible tells us that the relationship that we have with God is, a, is like marriage. Or we should put it the other way around, that marriage is like the relationship we have with God. Because they are both covenant love relationships. And so God's commitment to marriage is his commitment to covenant love. So let me ask you another question, just to put it in a slightly different way. If God didn't hate divorce... How could we be sure of his covenant love towards us? If he thought that divorce was a light thing, a trivial thing, an easy thing, how could we be sure that he wouldn't then divorce us? But the Bible tells us that God's love for us is a fierce, passionate, committed, jealous covenant love. And that it cannot be broken. This is why we get verses like this in Romans 8. And this is talking to us who are Christians. Us who have come into a relationship with God. And who call God our Father. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And friend, you may have been asking this question. Am I loved by God? Can He love me in spite of my failings? Can He love me despite the fact that I've been walking away or running away from him? Can he love me even though I feel so wretched? And the answer is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says there's absolutely nothing, death and life, angels, rulers, absolutely nothing that can separate you from the love of God because of this. It's against God's very nature or his character to break his covenant love towards the people he has married. In Ephesians 5, it's put like this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound 
And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. When you start hearing Jesus talk about marriage, and he he references marriage a lot in his parables, his teachings, you've got to understand that you're getting close to the essence of his sense of love for you. That this is the heart of the gospel. That marriage and Christ's love for you are one and the same reality. He loves you like a husband, a perfect husband. So when Jesus hears the question, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any cause? Inside, he has a revulsion to the very idea. The suggestion he finds disgusting because he would no more allow you to divorce your spouse than he would want to divorce his church, which is you. Does Jesus seem overly harsh to you then on this subject? Wouldn't you rather marry someone with a fierce commitment like this? Friends, most of you are single. Some of you will get married. This is the benchmark. You want to marry somebody who has this kind of a commitment, who's like Jesus, who doesn't see divorce as a way out because their commitment is covenantal love. Wouldn't you rather marry someone like that? And then last question, wouldn't you rather know a savior with that same fierce commitment to you? That his love for you doesn't depend on your worthiness, on how closely you walk to him or on how well you love him, but rather depends on his passionate, unwavering love and commitment towards you.